kind of a weird day out, isn't it? I'm like looking out there, it's super foggy and kind of damp. Maybe kind of a good atmosphere for this particular sermon. We're in the middle of a series called The Elements of Worship, where we've been talking a little more in depth about some of the various aspects of our Sunday morning uh, worship time, just to help us connect a little more deeply with some of the rituals as well as some of the music. And so this morning, I want us to consider together the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And we're going to sing that one after communion. And I thought I would invite you, if you've got your bulletin, to go ahead and take it out so the lyrics are on the back. And if you'll just humor me, because we didn't sing it yet this morning, maybe we could just sing the first verse together, for those of you who know it. So I'll, I'll lead it here. Everybody ready? Okay, Cassie, don't judge me. <laughs> When peace like a river songs where I feel like people either find a lot of comfort in singing it or else they feel a little resentful of it. You're almost like, I don't want to say that it's well with my soul when it feels like everything in my life is falling apart. You know, I like to sing this song like when things are going good, right? I feel like I've got a lot of thanksgiving when I'm singing the song, but in times are going bad, it's a little like, ugh. So we were chatting about it at our last staff meeting when Caroline, who's our youth director there in the back, she shared a personal story about the song. And she told me that I could share it with you. I said, okay, just write up a little bit. And so I'm gonna start by reading um, a bit of what she wrote about this song because I think she really captures both the comfort and the pain that converge in this hymn. So Caroline says this, she says, I remember singing this song just after I had my second miscarriage. And after these miscarriages, I felt a great emptiness in my body and I felt betrayed. Like, there's certainly been times when I've distrusted my own mind from experiences of mania and depression, but I always trusted my body. And over the course of a year, my body suddenly felt like an empty tomb. It felt like a graveyard of sorts, but it, it's like not even the remains of the dead were there. There wasn't a place to visit, and there was no place to go and to mourn the loss. And she said, then reading, I came across this verse in Isaiah. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor. She said, this verse seemed like such a contradiction to my lived experience. Like, how can you sing in the midst of that? How could I burst into song or shout? Life can be heartbreaking. Our world is full of injustice. It is not well. And the Bible of all books has certainly been used to reinforce some of these powerful social norms. She says, but then we sang this song at Blue Ocean, and I found myself singing it with intention. And I felt like my heart burst into song in the middle of my suffering, you know, like what the prophet Isaiah had described. And it felt like I had an encounter with God. And this moment revealed to me that it felt like in God something new has come. And that there have been encounters like this that have been recorded throughout the centuries in the stories of the Bible and in the poems and even the songs. And she says, I don't think this song is for the rich and the comfortable. This song is for the poor and the hungry and for those who mourn. But when we encounter God's love, we can sing this song like in expectation of something new to come. 
And I think what Caroline discovered here was the core message of this song, that it's not about covering our feelings with a smile and acting like things are good when they're not. Rachel knows, I, I pull that because I have to like take a while when I figure out something's wrong with me and I'm like, I'm fine when things are not fine. That's not what this is about, you know, smiling through gritted teeth and saying you're fine. It's about practicing hope in the middle of the suffering and perhaps maybe even being able to experience God standing there in the suffering with you. So, you know, I was really struck by what seems like the contradictory nature of the first two lines as he gets you into this, the, uh, the author. When peace like a river attendeth my way. I just picture that, like peace, like a river attending your way. Like I picture that like a river coming at me. Like that's kind of a strong force. When peace like a river is coming at me, and when sorrow like sea billows roll. So you're picturing these like large waves of sorrow, right? So you've got both the river rushing at you and these large waves coming at you and rolling over you. And I thought that's really not a picture of calm. Like either one of those things would be enough to knock you off of your feet. I thought, well, if the, if the writer was trying to describe calm, he could have described something like, you know, like a lake on one of those days where there's like no wind and you know it like looks almost like glass and you can see the sun coming off of it and there's no ripples but that's not what he described he describes peace and intense sorrow present together in the midst of this sort of chaos of rushing river and a raging sea that makes you feel like you can hardly stand up and i was remembering when i was little my family used to go down to panama city florida we'd drive down there um, for vacation you know, in Michigan, everybody goes up north. In Indiana, everybody goes to the panhandle of, of Florida. And you know how you're not supposed to go in the water, even in Lake Michigan, right? If there's like a yellow flag or a red flag up, because it means that the undertow is strong, so it's like, don't go out there. Well, that yellow flag was always like my dad's cue to gather us kids up in a raft and go out into the water, because that meant that the waves were bigger. And when I think about that as an adult, I'm a little like, oh my gosh, what was he doing? <laughs> But, you know, I think he always made sure like, he could stand up, he had us, he was a strong swimmer. But even so, there's this one particular time that stands out in my mind when I was pretty little. Because I remember accidentally letting go of my dad's arm and putting my feet down and feeling like I literally couldn't stand. And it was scary. And I was like, oh, that's what the undertow is. You know, but I was able to get a hold of my dad's arm again and I was okay and I was safe. And then, of course, we'd ride the big waves to the shore and we all loved it. So that's the picture that comes to my mind when I think about this mixture of peace and of sorrow, of like grabbing onto my dad and holding onto something that could keep me steady and safe. And it's a little bit like, like the Apostle Peter. You know, there's that story where Jesus is out walking on the water and the Apostle Peter jumps out of the boat and he's walking out to him and suddenly he gets scared and he starts to sink. And then Jesus reaches down his hand and pulls Peter up. It's that same sort of thing. Like in this song, it's like the, the storm and the, the river. These are like emotional waves, emotional storm coming at you. And so holding on to peace in the midst of these emotions is like, you know, like me clinging to my dad or like Peter clinging to Jesus. It's like the one thing that can help see you through. So the song itself has an interesting history. I'm just curious, do, you, do any of you guys know the history? Have you read it? Oh, okay, like maybe like one. Oh, this is a couple of you. I mean, I had read it. I actually read a biography of this guy's a few years this few years back, but um, this is worth hearing. So I know like one of the things that helps me in my faith life is hearing the stories of other people and how they process some of the difficult questions 
um, within a spiritual framework. And I think testimony is really powerful. So here's, here's the story of the man who wrote this song. He was born in 1828 in a place called Lansingburg, New York, which is kind of like one of the eastern suburbs of Albany today. And the boy's name was Horatio Gates Spafford, Jr., which tells you there was a Horatio Gates Spafford Sr. who thought it was a great idea to name his kid Horatio Gates Spafford Jr. Like, oh my gosh, like you can't have enough Horatios in the world. Well, Horatio Sr., the elder, he had a pretty prominent role in the federal government. He had invented some kind of process that helped with steel making, and so the family was fairly wealthy. And so little Horatio Jr., he grew up with money and he became well-educated. He studied law, and then he moved to Chicago, where he specialized in medical law. And he became a partner, pretty young, in a downtown firm called Spafford, McDade, and Wilson. And at that time, this was probably in his early 20s, he started attending the Fullerton Avenue Presbyterian Church, which if you guys know Chicago at all, I think it's in the Lincoln Park area, and is still there, I think, under a different name. And he taught Sunday school. He said he especially loved teaching young people. He eventually became an elder in the church, and he also eventually met his, uh, the woman who he would eventually marry there. She was a pretty new immigrant named Anna Larson. And so after they wed, they bought a house up on the, the really nice north side of Chicago. They were doing well. They started having a family. And they had four daughters, Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanetta. Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanetta. And this family was significantly involved in the abolitionist movement. So this was around the time of the Civil War. We're talking early to mid-1960s. And so after the war was over, about 1970, the Spaffords found that they had a significant amount of money to invest. And so Horatio Jr., he went downtown and he bought several properties in Chicago in the spring of 1871. But this was terrible timing. Because the spring 1871, he invests all his money in, in buildings and in offices downtown. And then that October, the Great Chicago Fire happened. And so there are some tales, I'm like remembering from a biography I read 10 years ago that I couldn't find. Like these tales of him, like his account of running down there and trying to see if any of the buildings could be saved and trying to get to his law office and he couldn't because that was a loss. And so he head back uptown just to make sure the fire wasn't going to reach his family home. And they didn't lose the family home, but they did eventually lose everything else, including the law office. You know, the Great Chicago Fire, you know, the, the story is that, like, was it Bessie the cow kicked over the lantern, which isn't quite accurate, apparently. They thought it would make a good story. Um, but it was a significant major disaster. You know, 300 people died. The, the statistic that really stands out to me is 100,000 people lost their homes in a city that probably had about 300,000 people at the time. So we're talking, like, a big portion of that city. Um, people's homes burned down. Three to four square miles of the city were demolished. And so firefighters were, were trying to like fight this fire and they had those old horse-drawn carriages. Like, have you guys ever been to the Firefighters Museum in downtown Ipsy? Some of you. We just went there this year. It's interesting. They've got these old-timey fire thing engines where they would hook them onto a horse and they'd have like one big canister where they'd hook up the hoses to and it was filled with water and sometimes some chemicals. And when I think about those you know, those firefighting engines that they had back then, and they only had like 150 firefighters, like, they weren't going to make a dent in that. And so over the next two years, Horatio and his family, they, they started to work to rebuild his business and to rebuild the city, and they used some of the monetary resources that they still had available to help some of the people who were homeless, to provide shelter as well as food. But the stress of doing 
all of this cleaning up and sort of the unending benevolence work eventually took a toll, especially on Horatio's wife, Anna, whose health started to suffer. And so a doctor recommended that they go away for a little while. And so the Spaffords had some friends over in England that they could stay with. So they decided to go to New York City and embark on a, a ship to go over there and stay with their friends. So Horatio went and his wife and their four daughters, as well as a nanny that they took uh, along with them. So they got to New York City and they were about to board this French ocean liner called the Ville du Ove. But however, when they were in New York, Horatio got word that one of his business partners, it's a little unclear, or a potential business partner, but somebody that he knew had passed away suddenly. And so he felt like he needed to go back to Chicago. So he and Anna decided that he'd go back to Chicago and that she would go on ahead with the girls and with the nanny and that he would join them in a couple of weeks. And so they boarded the boat and the boat had been at sea for about a week. It was out there on like the North Atlantic, I think it was like just southeast of Greenland. When one morning at 2 a.m. people were woken by the sound of two large noises that sounded like thunder and a boat had collided with them. It was a British vessel called the Loch Urn. And the Loch Urn had torn the passenger ship almost in half. And the boat that his wife and kids were on sank within 12 minutes. And so people were rushing to find life jackets and they realized that the lifeboats, I think this is just, it's, it's like you think of the Titanic, only this is a little different disaster with the lifeboats. They had recently painted the ship and sort of refurbished it. So they'd painted the lifeboats and the paint had dried. And so all of them were stuck to the ground. And so they managed to get a few free in those 12 minutes, but the majority of the people were not able to get access to them. Anna survived, and she later described being sucked down pretty violently into the cold water. She was hit with a ton of debris that caused her to let go of the kids. And she got caught in some kind of a whirlpool and eventually surfaced. And she grabbed onto a piece of wood. And so a man that was going around looking for survivors found her unconscious on this piece of wood and dragged her into a lifeboat. And she said her next memory was coming too on the floor of that boat. So Anna and Emma the nanny survived, but none of the girls did. I know this is like a heartbreaking, heartbreaking story here, but the two of those women were then taken to Cardiff, Wales. And from there, Anna sent her husband a cable that just read, saved alone, what will I do? And then she told them she'd go stay in Paris with another survivor. And so when Horatio, back in Chicago, got that cable, he immediately left for France. Um, later in life, he and his wife actually, they had another daughter, he had a couple of them, Bertha, who said that her dad um, described that he, when he was on that boat, going over then to France to be with his wife, that the captain of the ship called him up to the bridge and just said to him, okay, we're approaching the place where the Ville du Ove went down. And just so you know, this is, this is where it happened and the sea is about three miles deep here. And so Horatio went out and he watched the sea and that's where he grieved. And that evening he went to his bunk and he wrote the poem, It Is Well, that would later be put to music. Right, so he writes, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, he knows of what he speaks. Right, so the Chicago fire cost him his wealth, his law firm, he cared for so many people and was carrying their stories of trauma. He lost a business associate, and then he lost his four daughters, all within two years. So it's a man who knows sorrow, and he's standing there, and he's literally watching these waves of the North Atlantic and saying that his sorrow feels that immense and that dark and that tumultuous. And he says, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, 
Although in the original poem, it's no. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know. You know that, like deep inner knowing. It is well, it is well with my soul. And I doubt very much that in that moment, he actually felt like all was well. You know, but like Peter in the chaos of the storm, it was like he was holding on to the only buoy that could keep his head above water and that could keep him from drowning in despair. And that hope was that God is real, that God is good, and that he'd see his girls again one day. And so shortly after arriving in Europe, Horatio, he wrote to his sister-in-law, Rachel, and he said this of his daughters. He says, they are safe, folded the dear lambs. Right, so he was holding on to this hope that God carries us all. I thought it was a really beautiful picture and that there's something better to come and that we can catch maybe just a taste of that even when we're hurting. You know, it's like a river that's bringing peace from one realm where things are okay into this realm. And it's like a river that's strong enough to break through the sorrow that we're feeling. You know, the last verse of the song says, and Lord, haste the day, right? Make it come quickly when my faith will be sight. I want to see things when they're good again. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. We sing, even so it is well with my soul. In his original, it's a song in the night, O my soul. The trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend, a song in the night, O my soul. He's saying it feels like darkness surrounds me, but I can hear the sound of something sweet in the distant future. Like I can catch a glimpse of it. It's like it's echoing out of this other place. I hear something that I can't yet see, but I've got just, just a little glimpse of it. And he's saying, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. And I think this captures the essence of the entire song, right? It's a song about having faith that that goodness is yet to come. And about having faith that in the midst of this darkness that we can declare that will come. You know, it's like faking it till you make it in some senses, right? It is well with my soul. And then just like declaring, no, it is well with my soul. And I'm going to declare that it's well even when I know that it's not because I need to anticipate a time when things will be okay. You know, I was thinking in my life um, a few years back, I got a terrible, terrible sunburn. I was kayaking around an island somewhere and I'd put on um, what do you call it sunscreen but it turns out it was far outdated and outdated sunscreen apparently acts like oil and so I spent the entire day kayaking around this it was an island in Hong Kong so we're like pretty close to the equator and I mean I was I was not in good shape I had like second degree burns it took me two weeks to hardly be able to stand up like I had should I get, I don't know if this is too much for the kids. <laughs> Teresa's a nurse. She's over there like, yeah, go for it. I mean, just like, we're talking like, I just had like bubble blisters all over my arms, my legs, my chest, anything that was exposed that would just drain with like oozy yellow. Okay, probably too much. <laughs> I had a nurse come and clean me and rewrap me every single day. It was, it was awful. I would cry having to stand up. I was in China. So where I was living, I didn't actually have a bathtub, right? So there was just a drain. So like I'd try and use the bathroom standing up so I wouldn't have to sit. This is way TMI. I'm looking at Molly like, oh no, this is way. I mean, I was in pain. 
And I remember the only thing that got me through, I, I couldn't cook, I couldn't make meal. I totally had to depend on other people to care for me. And I just remember laying in my bed one day and thinking, the hope that's getting me through is that in six months, this will be like a blink. This will be like nothing. You know, like in the scope of my life, like right now it feels like it's never going to end and it's the worst pain I've ever had in my entire life. But I can imagine a future when it will be okay. And because I could imagine a future when it would be okay, I was able to make it through. And I think it is well with my soul as us imagining a time when things will be okay again so that we can get through the immediacy of the crisis. Lord, haste the day when my faith that this is true will actually be sight. You know, dang, do I want to see that day now? Haste that day. Bring it quick. It's a similar feeling to the last word in the Bible, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. So then Horatio Spafford, he describes that day when things will be okay. He says, the clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend a song in the night. Oh, my soul. And this references a passage that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. It's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 to 18. Paul writes, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's a strange passage. And it's been used for all kinds of fiction works, you know, the Left Behind series, this idea of Jesus returning to earth on a literal cloud with a trumpet sounding and all of the believers raptured into the air. Well, the Greek word that's used here for Jesus coming down from heaven is perusia. And it simply means coming or arriving. And the Latin word that's used is adventus. So, like, you know, we celebrate Advent before Christmas. Advent just means coming. We're celebrating the first coming, the coming of Jesus as a little baby onto the earth. This is the same word, just a different language. So in the context of the Roman world that Jesus grew up in and that Christianity was birthed into, that word perusia was most often associated with the visit of a Roman emperor to a city. Right, so the arrival, the adventus, the perusia of the emperor was widely celebrated and people would all come out to the city gates and they would rush to meet the emperor. Right, and so cities would even like, they would mint coins to mark when this happened. It was that big of a deal. So like when Caesar Augustus went to Corinth, they, they made a coin that says adventus Caesar Augusti. Right, this was like a big occasion that deserved commemorating. And it was something New Testament writers were familiar with. This happened around them. So the Apostle Paul, he uses this picture of the arrival of an emperor in a city to describe what things might be like when Jesus returns to the earth again, right? So Christians, we believe Jesus came once, born as a child in Bethlehem, and that Jesus will come again. But what that looks like, no one knows. And nobody can possibly know because it hasn't happened yet. You know, there were a lot of prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures about what Jesus' first coming, the coming of the Messiah might look like, and still almost everyone was surprised by what it looked like. You know, nobody expected an unmarried woman from the Galilee to carry a child who would lead a movement of love that brought all the wrong sorts of people. All right, so we see hints in the scriptures looking back, but at the time that was not a widespread expectation. So what makes us think that we have any idea what this next coming would look like? 
But this is the picture that Horatio Spafford is appealing to. Right? It's a picture from Thessalonians where the Apostle Paul compares Jesus' return to an emperor coming to visit a city. And what he's saying is that when he comes again, it will cause a commotion. And people, both the living and the dead, are going to greet him and they're going to celebrate. And Horatio Spafford may very well believe that there would be like a literal descent of God from above with humans going out to meet him. That's perfectly within Christian orthodoxy. It's perfectly within Christian orthodoxy. I'm personally a little less certain about what that exactly means in 1 Thessalonians. But what I can say a big amen to is the hope that the divine presence of love in Jesus will envelop the world, and I sure hope that it does. I hope for justice. I hope for peace. I hope for a movement of love that takes humanity and all of creation its embrace and makes it right. That is the Christian hope, that the presence of love will permeate the earth. And I think it's a beautiful hope. You know, a friend of mine who's getting his master's of divinity at Princeton, he's studying to be a, um, a pastor, he wrote this on his Facebook wall this week. It's, it's kind of like pastor nerdy, so you'll, you'll see here. He says, this afternoon, I was mulling Julian of Norwich, you know, as one does. Julian of Norwich was a, a mystic, a Catholic mystic. No, not Catholic. I don't know, she's embracing, I think, the Lutheran and Episcopal traditions. Anyway, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. And he says, lately those words have felt like the crazy talk of a medieval mystic, so far removed from this reality. But I want them to be my heartfelt prayer, to believe that they are and that they will be true. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It's expressing the Christian belief that all things will be set to rights one day, and that sometimes we want to just outright declare that this is so, and we want to reach ahead, and we want to catch a little piece of that, and we want to pull it into our current reality, because without the hope that things will be okay, it is hard to get through life. And so even after all that he went through, Horatio Spafford held on to the idea that God is completely good. He's a man, he didn't believe in hell. At least he didn't believe it as a place of eternal torment. He didn't believe that a loving God would do that to humans. And so he's actually been called a heretic by some. Might remind some of you like, Lo like Rob Bell when he wrote Love Wins. Horatio Spafford was kind of of that ethos. And after he lost his wife, uh, I mean not his wife, his four kids, and believe it or not, so they went on to have three more kids. They had a son and they had two daughters. The son actually died at four years old of scarlet fever. The two girls did grow into adulthood, Bertha and um, Grace. But for all of their losses, their church community in Chicago, after losing five children, told them that that was a result of divine punishment against them and that God was angry with them and so I thought, man, to Horatio and Anna's credit, they said, bugger off. That's not who God is. And they left and they went on to form their own church community that was later dubbed the Overcomers. So I, there's something about them I just kind of like, you know, I kind of get them. And then in 1881, about eight years after that shipwreck, the Spafford packed up their two girls and they moved to Jerusalem where they formed what came to be known as the American Colony. So I don't know, some of you know, I lived and studied in Jerusalem for a few months, way back in 2007, 2008. And it turned out that the place where I studied was the home of the Spaffords. That's where the American colony formed, you know, so I've got this little connection with them. So there's a historian of the American colony, and they wrote this. I thought this is worth sharing here. They said, colony members who were later joined by the Swedish Christians, they engaged in philanthropic work among people of Jerusalem, regardless of their religious affiliation and without proselytizing motives. So this was back when Jerusalem was part of British Palestine. 
So they weren't trying to proselytize anyone. Thereby, they gained the trust of local Muslim, Jewish, and Christian communities. So they were very ecumenical. So during and immediately after World War I, the American colony played a critical role in supporting these communities through all of the great suffering and deprivations of the Eastern Front by running soup kitchens and hospitals and orphanages and other ventures. That work has been continued to this very day. And the Spafford Children's Center is still a very active local regional outreach to both Jews and Arabs in the city of Jerusalem. It's also still being run by the descendants of Horatio and Anna Spafford, who care for over 30,000 needy children every year. On their internet site, the members of the family write, Spafford Children's Center is a private non-sectarian outreach still managed by members of the same family who settled in Jerusalem more than a century ago. Through four changes of government, through wars and upheavals, we've held fast to our commitment to the children of greater Jerusalem. So while I don't believe suffering ever comes from God, I think God can work through our suffering, right, for good. And I think the Spafford story is a great witness to this. And I also think that Horatio's poem and the song that he wrote can give us some guidance on how to experience, you know, comfort and the presence of God in the midst of that. Because, you know, there are some questions that no religion can answer. Why do we suffer? Where does suffering come from? You know, those are eternal human questions that if somebody had a good answer for them, they would be rich. But what Christianity offers is how do we get through suffering? And if there's a loving God, could this God possibly care? And we can answer by looking at scripture and saying it seems like the testimony of humans before us say that God is this kind of God. He's Emmanuel, God with us. God who is love. But I think that the answers, at least the ones that penetrate my heart the most, are hearing the testimonies or hearing the stories of people who have grappled with God in the midst of that kind of suffering. And so that's how I experience this song, right? It's a testimony of finding hope in the middle of hopelessness. And it helps me to think that if somebody like Horatio, who lost so much, if he can find hope and faith in this sort of divine love, in presence, then maybe I can too. Maybe I can too. So we're going to close by doing, I'm going to do a guided meditation. We often do two minutes of silence or else um, just a little prayer guidance. I just invite you to just get yourself comfortable, relax. You don't have to close your eyes. You can. You can kind of sit however is comfortable for you. Don't worry about noise. People and babies make noise. But as we're in this space of just inviting the presence of God and maybe hoping for some kind of connection with this divine, I would invite you to imagine that you're standing on a boat, either in the ocean or maybe in Lake Michigan or Lake Superior, but standing maybe by a rail, just kind of looking over and just pay attention to your surroundings. Just notice whatever your imagination is is allowing you to see. What's the weather like? What does it smell like and sound like?
I'd invite you as you're looking at the sea to just maybe try and connect with, with any feelings you're having. You may have more than one, but looking over the last year especially. And you might be swelling with thankfulness. It could be some sorrow, some anxiety. Like what does the sea kind of capture for you in your emotional sphere? you to imagine that Jesus or if if Jesus doesn't quite work for you at this point maybe the presence of divine love however you conceptualize that I invite you to like just allow Jesus or love to come and and just stand beside you Make some space. Maybe nothing will be said. Maybe nothing needs to be said. But if this is a space maybe where you can talk to Jesus or Jesus can even maybe say something to you, we'll just have some silence here. Jesus, we acknowledge that we don't know why we suffer sometimes or why there's grief in the world and sickness, but we thank you that your presence comes alongside us and that the witness of who you are, uh, both through scripture as well as in people's lives, is that you're a God who comforts us in sorrow, that you're a God who comforts us in grief and in our anxieties, and you're a God who celebrates with us. You know, for those of us who have had just a really great year, Lord, that you're right there in the midst of all of our humanness. And we thank you for the comfort of your spirit and your presence. And we look for the day when your love and your peace and your justice will envelop the world. In the name of Jesus, amen.